Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. This week, the National Constitution Center convened in Coral Gables, Florida, for a meaningful series of conversations about the Constitution with speakers of diverse perspectives. Today on We the People, we're sharing one of those conversations with the permission of the speakers. This is a conversation with five great scholars about two of the biggest issues before the Supreme Court this term, abortion and guns. The scholars are Melissa Murray of NYU Law, Akhil Amar of Yale Law School, Clark Neely of the Cato Institute, Kimberly Atkins-Store of the Boston Globe, and David French of The Dispatch. It was an honor to host the conversation, and I'm so glad to share it with you, dear We the People listeners. Enjoy the show. We are going to begin with Dobbs, the abortion case, which raises the question, should Roe v. Wade be overturned? And we're honored to begin with Melissa Murray. Uh, should it be overturned, and why or why not? I don't think that Roe versus Wade should be overturned. Um, I think the two best arguments for it being overturned are that it is not rooted in constitutional text, that there is no enumerated right to an abortion, and if you follow the Glucksburg line of reasoning that a right to an abortion is not deeply rooted in the history of the United States. Even though those are the best arguments in favor of overturning it, I think they miss something quite important. And Again, it's true that the Constitution says nothing specific about a right to an abortion, but the Constitution does speak of liberty, and in the 14th Amendment, that guarantee of liberty is part of a trio of amendments that's specifically intended to deal with the question of how to recuperate the country and the national identity from the stain of slavery after the American Civil War. So you have the 13th Amendment, which formally abolishes slavery, the 15th Amendment, which provides African-American men with access to the franchise, and then you have the 14th Amendment. And the drafters of the 14th Amendment were seriously thinking about what the vestiges of slavery were, what the indicia of that institution were, and how the Constitution could repudiate it. And among the most, I think, concerning indicia of slavery were the absence of family integrity, the absence of an opportunity for slaves to formally recognize their relationships through marriage, um, the lack of control over their children, and the lack of bodily autonomy, both in terms of their labor and in terms of their sexual lives. And so the 14th Amendment's guarantee of liberty is intended to address that. The drafters talk about that, the ratifiers talk about that. My colleague at NYU, Peggy Cooper Davis, has written a wonderful book, Neglected Stories, The Constitution and Family Values, which reiterates much of this history and goes deep into the history around the ratification of the 14th Amendment. And that guarantee of liberty, the repudiation of that lack of control over bodies, families, and intimate life is exactly what the liberty in the 14th Amendment was intended to address. So when individuals say that there is no guarantee for abortion in the Constitution, I think it really misses that quite significant constitutional history, which I think provides textual hooks for thinking about the abortion right. Thank you so much. Akhil Amar, should Roe v. Wade be overturned or not? So you're not asking about our personal views, but my legal views are different than my personal views, and that's important to make clear. I'm personally pro-choice. My brother clerked for Harry Blackman, who wrote Roe v. Wade, which, um, and, and Vic loved 
um, uh, Harry Blackman. I think Roe was a very um, uh, bad decision, and um, uh, I don't think it had proper grounding in the Constitution. I'll try to give you the best argument on the other side, and this was very thoughtful, my colleague and friend um, Melissa's articulation. Um, but um, Roe doesn't even quote the relevant language of the Constitution um, at all, and it's not the Liberty Clause, it's life, liberty, or property, and so, um, and they can all be abridged with proper procedures, and if you can't abridge liberty with proper procedures, oh, then you can't abridge property either, and that takes us to the bad old days of Lochner. Um, and there are unenumerated rights, but I think uh, the uh, their best uh, rights of the people, their privileges and immunities of citizens, reflected in actual practices of um, Americans, um, state by state, and I think it's hard to ground um, Roe in that. Now, I do think that the history of slavery and the background of Reconstruction is very important. Half the people who were enslaved were women. Their bodies were used against, uh, and the reproductive organs against their will. They were uh, sexual playthings against their will. They were breeders against their will. They were wet nurses against their will. All true. Um, um, but on the other side, and, and a very powerful article saying all this is by my student, Andy Koppelman. I gave him the topic. I, I wasn't willing to actually articulate myself because in the end I didn't believe it. It's called Forced Labor, pun intended, a 13th Amendment critique of abortion saying this is implicating women's liberty and um, equality interests. But on the other side, there is the argument of innocent unborn human life. The people who are really critics of Roe don't say, the harshest critics, it's Lochner. They say it's Dred Scott. Dred Scott said blacks can't be citizens, Roe says fide can't be persons. Dred Scott is based on substantive due process, so is Roe versus Wade. Dred Scott takes a moral issue where states have disagreed and nationalizes it into its critics. When you remember, I'm pro-choice um, in an immoral direction. Dred Scott makes the Republican Party platform unconstitutional. The Republican Party platform back then is read my lips, no new slavery, slavery in the territories, um, and it makes that unconstitutional, Dred Scott does, and, and Roe makes the Republican Party platform unconstitutional. So I think it's a bridge too far, but those views are different than my personal political views, which are pro-choice. I don't think, at the end of the day, the reason this is so difficult is both parties claim to be the party of Lincoln. One says, women's liberty and equality, Abe Lincoln would be with us, yes. The other side says, who are the most politically vulnerable among us? You know, who are the slaves today? Not women, yes, that they can vote, but innocent, unborn human life. So that's why it's so hard, because there's the interest on the other side as well, and I can't really honestly say that the Constitution clearly comes down on the one side or the other, especially in a trimester framework or anything else that really adjudicates the, 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 the difference between these two competing interests. Thank you so much for that. Kimberly Atkinson. Yeah, so I will start by saying I'm not a constitutional scholar. I'm a journalist. I am a, a, a lawyer um, and a citizen and uh, a black woman in America and someone who would like to see abortions greatly reduced in this country. Um, so that's, I guess that's my starting point on this. Um, the answer is no. I do not believe that Roe versus Wade should be overturned. I spend a lot of time in my job as a columnist and legal analyst thinking about the way the law uh, not only has developed and its uh, basis in the Constitution or in statutes, but also its impact 
throughout history and in modern times. And in addition to the, the comments from Melissa, which I associate myself with completely, um, what I am very worried about by the draft opinion that came out is what that does to the substantive due process right as somebody for whom that right has been incredibly important for me and my ancestors and for other disenfranchised people in the country. I worry very much that any rule, any law, any constitutional principle that is not quote unquote deeply rooted in history will now be imperiled. I know that in this draft, Justice Alito uh, distinguished abortion based on the fact that it had to do with life. But if you read his analysis, uh, it seems to me that many of the substantive due process rights that have only recently in our history, uh, within the lifetime of most people in this room, uh, been recognized, been fully protected. If you do the same analysis for those, you can come to the same conclusion. And if that is the case, if we are taking this very specific look at what the framers intended at the time of the framing, and that's it, uh, given the rights of disenfranchised people at that time, that worries me greatly in addition to the fact that I do believe that the liberty right was intended to be protected, um, even if it was written imperfectly in this document. And we talked about earlier today about the way the founding didn't happen in this miraculous, magical way. It happened with humans battling it out and not even really being entirely uh, satisfied with the conclusion, but I, um, I recently did a series on, on that looked at race, but I began it with the words, not of the Constitution, but the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think that is an American ideal. That is what we think about when we think about America and that liberty interest, including the one, uh, in addition to the one in the Constitution. If that does not mean we have full autonomy over our bodies and our choices and the way something as intimate as the way we reproduce, I worry greatly that that deeply erodes constitutional protections that I grew up and went to law school and graduated law school believing that we had uh, are not as strong as I thought they were. Thank you very much indeed for that. Clark Neely. I find this to be an extraordinarily uh, <clears throat> difficult question. I, um, you know, as a constitutional lawyer, I try very hard to uh, not to project my own um, desires onto the text of the Constitution and try to be extremely uh, consistent and, and honest about uh, what the Constitution means. Um, I'll start with one premise, um, which is that I, I think the Constitution is very clearly best understood to protect at least some unenumerated or not specifically described rights. And, and this has been largely uncontroversial for most of our history. So the right to guide the upbringing of your children, um, the right to travel, which is not mentioned in the text of the Constitution. Uh, I personally think one of the worst Supreme Court decisions uh, is Buck v. Bell, which is a 1927 decision in which the court found that there's nothing in the Constitution to prevent the state, and not just the state, but state eugenicists from tearing out your reproductive organs. I can't believe that's right. I think that would turn the Constitution into a monstrosity that, would, that could not um, legitimately claim anybody's moral support. So, um, so then the question becomes, well, what are these unenumerated rights, and is the right to terminate a pregnancy one of them? Uh, 
And look, if you, it, it really at this point I think depends what lens you look through. If you look through you know, the lens of history and totally discount the fact that we, we haven't been very vigilant about the rights of people who are not white men, um, then certainly you don't see a robust protection of, 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 of abortion rights uh, in history. Uh, on the other hand, I, I press my conservative friends to explain to me, for example, some of the inconsistencies we have seen um, in abortion laws, for example, making an exception uh, for cases of rape and incest. Is that that fetus that you claim is a human life any less a human life because of the way that it was conceived? How can you explain this? Why are you not more interested in the fact that somewhere between a third and a half of all fertilized eggs fail to implant naturally? Why have you not done anything? Why have you not lifted a finger to try to change that percentage if you think every one of those is a human being? And I say that not by way of challenging, but more by way of saying, can you explain these inconsistencies to me? And if you can't, um, this seems to me um, a subject for further thought and reflection, and that's what I've been doing all along, and I will continue to do, uh, and I just don't know what my answer is, but I guess if I had to and I was pushed, I would say provisionally the answer for me is no, Roe should not be overturned. Mm. Thank you for that. David French. So I'm a yes on overturning Roe, and just as a bit of background here, I agree completely with the idea, uh, and I think this is inarguable, it's a constitutional, that, the, uh, that our rights are not limited to what's enumerated. I mean, that's... That's just plain from the text. I also agree completely with the idea that the Civil War amendments represented, in essence, a new birth of freedom, almost a, in many ways, creating a new constitution that was dramatically and should be read as dramatically expanding uh, the sphere of human liberty. Uh, so I, I agree with those two things, absolutely. Where I think uh, abortion is different is that, again, when we're talking about human liberty, we're not talking inarguably about only one person in the abortion context. This is what makes this different, as Alito said in the Dobbs draft, uh, if it holds, um, that abortion is different from uh, Lawrence v. Texas, you know, the right to sexual intimacy with consenting adults. It's different from gay marriage, again, consenting adults. It's different from interracial marriage, again, consenting adults. What you're talking about here is that there is, as Alito says, there is a potential life, to use the language of Rowan Casey, or a unborn human being, to use the language of the statute. And so, therefore, the uh, analogy of comparing Roe to these other cases involving consenting adults and involving the rights of adults, they, it, it, they don't fully match. They don't fully match. But what we do have is kind of a, we remember our, na our, our national mission statement, um, certainly not law, but a, na a national mission statement. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And this is, uh, so the, the, the issue that I have is it's hard for me to look at a historical record in the context of a new birth of freedom that says, um, that is extending uh, protection of human beings. It's hard for me to look at that and say that not only may not include the unborn, which is what the democratic process says, that, that a state would say, no, it does not include the unborn, and another state says it does. But to say that it must not include the unborn, I think that's going beyond the meaning of that text. Thank you so much for a model of thoughtful, engaged, constitutional 
debate and disagreement. What was really unique and meaningful about this exchange was that you heard uh, five people with very diverse perspectives make different arguments and come to different conclusions. And what we've just modeled here is exactly what we, all uh, people who are privileged enough to be in this uh, important gathering, need to model with our families, our fellow citizens, and with students, which is namely, it is possible for reasonable people to disagree in good faith about the constitutional merits of Roe v. Wade and whether or not it should be overturned. And you have to take some time to listen to arguments on all sides. And of course, we've just begun to signal them. That was great. I think we should continue with this lightning round approach and now talk about the guns cases. Clark, Neely, if I may, you've been one of the leaders in bringing <clears throat> the Second Amendment to the attention of the court and in arguing and writing briefs in some of these cases. Tell us what Second Amendment case the court is deciding this term and how you think it should be decided? So there are basically three ways that states um, determine who can carry a gun outside of the home. Um, the most common way is what's called a shall issue permitting system. It's very much like getting a driver's license. If you meet the objective requirements, then you, you have, they have to give you the permit. The second way uh, is permitless or what is sometimes called provocatively constitutional carry. Um, and by the end of the summer, that'll be about a third of the states where there's just simply no permitting regime at all. Um, and then the third way is the one that's uh, under review at the Supreme Court now, which is what's called a discretionary permitting system. That's what New York, California, Massachusetts, and a handful of other states have, where um, the decision whether to issue a permit to carry uh, a weapon outside of the house is left to the discretion of a local official. Uh, there's some dis dispute in the New York case about uh, how much discretion. Um, I personally think it's, it's virtually total discretion. In theory, there's this sort of, you know, you have to demonstrate a, a particular need. Um, but I, I, there's not even, that's not even really defined. It's not defined at all in the relevant law. So, and, and the, the, the way that law has been uh, applied in New York is, is not a, uh, anything to be proud of. If you can go online and look and find, for example, that in New York City, Donald Trump had a concealed carry permit before he became president. Uh, so did Don Imus and Howard Stern, half of the uh, rock band Journey, half of the band Aerosmith, Martha Stewart's daughter, I guess for obvious reasons, since she can't carry one herself. Uh, and... Um, <laughs> You know, it looks to me like you get a license if you're sufficiently well-connected, but not otherwise, and I don't think that's anything to be proud of. So um, that's really all that's at issue in this case, uh, and, I, and I want to acknowledge the tragedy in Buffalo. I, I know that's on all of our minds, and it's something that should absolutely be a, a part of this discussion. Um, the, the, the truth, uh, as I see it, uh, unfortunately, is that there really doesn't appear to be any strong correlation uh, between uh, the gun laws in a particular regime and, and outcomes, uh, acts of violence, um, accident rates, death rates, and so forth. And so the challenge, as I see it, is, is how much of an imposition are we going to allow uh, on the ability of responsible people to exercise what the Supreme Court has held to be their Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms in pursuit of policy goals that really seem difficult, if not impossible, to achieve in this area because there just doesn't seem to be any correlation between gun regulations and outcomes. Thank you very much for that. And if I can just sum up the constitutional stakes, the court held in the McDonald and Heller cases that Chicago and New York's total bans on gun possession inside the home violate the 
individual right to bear arms protected by the Second Amendment. In this case that Clark has described raises the question of whether getting a permit to carry a gun outside the home violates the Second Amendment. And what standard should be applied? Should the court apply the deferential standard that it's applied in the past about whether or not the regulation is reasonable, or should it require a higher standard of cause, something called uh, intermediate scrutiny, requiring uh, a closer connection between the goals of the law and its means in order to uphold it? So those are the stakes, and Clark has set it up so well, and now let's just go down uh, our uh, panel and ask how you think the court should decide the Second Amendment concealed carry case. Melissa, Marie. Well, I think it's obvious from the November oral argument that the court will rule in favor of NYSERPA, the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, which is the principal litigant in favor of expanding the Second Amendment to include the opportunity to carry a gun publicly. Uh, I think the real question, and the one that I, as a resident of New York City, is most interested in is sort of, will there be sort of carve-outs for sensitive areas in which you might genuinely want some kind of state discretion for dealing with permits? So for example, um, during oral arguments, there was a colloquy between Paul Clement, who argued in favor of NYSERPA and the justices about whether you know, there could be restrictions, for example, on college campuses. And I will note that Paul Clement said that NYU does not have a campus. That is demonstrably false. <laughs> uh, it does have a campus. Uh, I just want to clear that up. That's a very nice one, actually. Um, <laughs> you know, there are also questions about whether this should be, you know, uh, the subway might be a place. And I think that is actually a very sensitive topic for people in New York City because the subway is such, uh, like, everyone uses the subway, like, like regardless of what walk of life you come from, everyone has to use the subway at some point. And, you know, we just had a subway shooting in New York City about a month ago that, you know, when you think about that, you think about your children on the subway going to school, that is a major artery of the city. And so you could imagine that there would be considerable concern about whether, if this right were expanded, what would be the limits, especially for densely populated areas or sensitive areas like campuses or stadia or metropolitan transit systems. And so th that to me is the bigger question. I think it's very obvious what the court is going to do, but whether there might be some limitations, I think is the question going forward. Many thanks for that. Akhil. Um, so in the spirit, once again, of trying to distinguish personal views or political views from constitutional views, I don't own a gun, never have, they scare me. Um, uh, I'm a wimp, swimming's pools scare me, you know, so, um, but um, my wife, I mean, my mom, who Freudian, uh, was a pediatrician, and, um, and she just saw a lot of drowned babies and a lot of gun accidents at home, and so she just kind of instilled in me anxiety about um, these public health issues. That said, I do believe that you have a right to have a gun in your home for self-protection, I think this is less because of the Second Amendment, which was more about militias, and more about the 14th Amendment and today's America. The framers of the 14th Amendment believe that no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the fundamental freedoms, the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States. Well, what are those? They thought things in the Bill of Rights, what we call the Bill of Rights, but they had a different understanding of what some of those things meant, and they didn't love militias so much. They had met them at Antietam and battles of um, Bull Run, and so they didn't love state militias, 
but they thought individual blacks had to have guns in their homes for self-protection because otherwise no one could, um, they couldn't count on the local constabulary when the Klan came calling. The Freedmen's Bureau Act of 1866, which is a companion statute of the 14th Amendment, explicitly talks about a constitutional right to have, you know, a, basically um, a gun in the home. Um, that's explicit in, in the statute. So forget the Second Amendment, even if we didn't have it, it's the 14th, which applies to states and localities. And even if we didn't have that, we have unenumerated rights. And where do we find them? We find them in part by counting states, by looking at evolving state traditions. Griswold, and I learned this from Jeff, um, who wrote a piece very early on saying in Griswold, only Connecticut made it a, a, a crime to use contraception in the home. That was easy. 49 states said you have this traditional right to, to have marital intimacy, and one said no, you don't. Roe very hard because not forget the 14th Amendment where most of the states had some restrictions. But at the time of Roe itself, 49 or 50 of the states actually had laws on the books at that time that were not Roe compliant. So Roe was way out of sync. Um, whether I like it or not, I'm not a gun person, states actually, and this is what Clark is, was, is telling you, um, guns in the homes, that's what City of Chicago versus McDonald and Heller were all about. This is a little trickier, it's guns outside the home, but he gave you actually the lay of the land. State counting is an important way of thinking about this, that's what the leaked Dobbs draft um, um, is all about. There's one interesting flip in all of this, which is what the Warren court generally did is impose northern values on southern outlier states, former Confederate states. Um, um, Gideon versus Wainwright, 45 states already recognized a, a, a right of appointed counsel. Only five didn't. They were in the former Confederacy. Um, this is a, um, a Jeff Sutton kind of point about looking at, at state practice. Now what we're seeing to some extent is southern and western values kind of being imposed on, 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 on northern coastal states and it feels different to folks in, in California and, and New York. And you're absolutely right. If we're going to count, maybe we should count very in a fine-grained way because guns in urban areas are really different than guns in rural areas. And so, so it, maybe we need very sophisticated counting um, and not just crude state-by-state -state counting. Thank you so much for that. Kimberly, I can start. Um, that's a lot to ponder. I will just start <laughs> at the top before I start uh, talking about the New York case that I worry when we start talking about constitutional rights, particularly those that are supposed to be unalienable, and in terms of them being guided by the sensibilities of different regions of the nation, just for some obvious reasons. Um, that concerns me greatly, particularly if you're talking about Roe. But with respect to the New York case, should what do I think should happen. I mean, I, dis I disagreed with Heller, so um, the idea of extending that certainly worries me. I disagreed with Heller, particularly if you're going, just for the basic reason, if you're, if you're taking an originalist view of the Second Amendment, which is what Heller was based upon, yeah, your points about the 14th and other parts well taken, that's what Heller was based upon. It completely ignores the well-regulated militia part of it, which I think is was quite a neat trick. Um, uh, and what I wonder about, what there are, there are ways that the court can address the 
the public carry laws um, that we're talking about here. Now, if the court says, okay, Heller is still Heller, but if a state imposes this particular type of regulation, they have to do X, Y, and Z. It has to be these standards on two. That's one thing. What I worry that the court will do is basically extend Heller outside of the home, which is create this individual right that is, I don't see how it's based in the Second Amendment, but the court had said it's so, outside of the home. And I don't see the textual just justification for that. I don't see the historical justification for that. Um, again, I look at the Constitution in terms of how it has played out over, over the history, how it impacts people today, but also about how people think about the Second Amendment, which I think is a problem. I think court rulings have been used by the public and politicized, I know we're not supposed to talk about politics, in a way that creates, I think, the gun right, the American gun right, um, the Second Amendment is seen almost as a religious principle, you know, something that is so deeply held and, and cherished by people that there is an idea that any infringement upon it, any rule that steps on it is somehow so anti-American that people need to rally against it. And I think that's a big reason for the gun violence issue that we have in our country. It's so different. You go someplace in Iceland, like everybody has a gun in Iceland, and there is no gun violence because they don't have that same principle based on a constitutional amendment, a misreading in my opinion. And I worry about that. I worry that extending that will continue to perpetuate that. So that's one of the downstream effects of the uh, ruling that I worry about. If I, I, I agree that I think it's going to go in, um, against New York. If they do it, I hope they do it in a limited way, but, but I'm not sure. Thank you so much for that. And David French, last word on the Second Amendment and the New York case to you. Well, since we're you know, uh, transparent about where we're coming from on some of these things, I, I can arm Ukraine. Uh, I have uh, quite a few guns. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but I'll say this, I do not believe the Second Amendment has quite the scope that a lot of gun rights ad advocates believe that it does. So the, the vast majority of American gun rights are secured by state statutes right now. So they're not secured by federal jurisprudence. Uh, they're primarily secured by state statutes. I do believe that a proper reading of Second Amendment with combined with some 14th Amendment principles in, is essentially saying what you have is a, an inherent right of self-defense, that each one of us has a right of self-defense. This is about as ancient a concept of, of personal autonomy and liberty that you can imagine. And that for a right of self-defense to be meaningful, it has to be effective. So for example, if I have a, I, if I have a right of self-defense and I, my reasonable foreseeable threat is people with guns and I can lawfully punch them, that's not an effective means of self-defense. So you're talking about as a general matter, a right of self-defense that belongs to a human being and certainly in the home, but also travels with them. So when they are in, space, in public spaces and they're outside of their home, as a general matter, they have a right of self-defense. Now, that does not mean, and I think one, thing, one of the interesting things about the court argument was that was brought up as this concept of reasonable sort of time, place, and manner restrictions. There are distinct places where the state interest is so strong in prohibiting firearms, uh, possession of firearms in those areas, where it, uh, it overcomes the uh, individual right of self-defense. Or 
And so I don't, I don't think, I think if you're a, a, a very strong gun rights supporter, I don't think the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association case is going to give you a lot, uh, to be honest. I think it's going to give you a very basic idea of a right that travels with you outside of the home of self-defense. But here's the other thing that I think is interesting and I think very, very relevant to some of our political disputes today. We see increasing open carry, okay, so public open carry of weapons. I do not think that that, and, and Clark may jump out of his chair at me right here, but uh, I do not think that that's constitutionally protective, open carry, because there's actually a very old common law tradition that you can't carry a weapon to the terror of the public. And the other day, I live in a very gun rights protective area. They practically issue a rifle to you when you cross the Tennessee state line. And I'm in a CVS and I'm waiting to pick up a prescription and the person in front of me has two pearl handled pistols on his hips. Well, first they were magnificent pistols. They were amazing, but what on earth? Why are you, is this Wyatt Earp here, you know? <laughs> and so that understandably makes people nervous. Um, it inflames situations. Um, you know, one of the, among the multiple layers of, trage of, of tragedy around the Kyle Rittenhouse case, so I'm pretty darn convinced if everyone wasn't carrying rifles, uh, the temperature would have been lower in that circumstance. So I do not believe that the Second Amendment is going to be held to con contain a right to carry outside the home however you wish to carry, open or concealed. And I don't think it will be held, nor should it be held, to sort of trump reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions. If you are a gun rights advocate uh, after New York State rifle and pistol, you're still going to be going to your state legislatures as the primary source of identifying what your gun rights are. The federal right is going to be relatively limited, is my view. Fascinating. Can I just make a quick point about sure. that? I mean, when you're talking about having guns and all the guns, the, 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 per, the individual who I know who has the biggest cache of firearms lives in Massachusetts, right? Lives mm -hmm. in a state where it probably has more gun laws and regulations, including one that might be struck down by the Supreme Court. I, I think we also forget that in the vast uh, majority of cases, guns are available and accessible to people. It, it's mm -hmm. not some right that is being infringed upon. I feel like it's, we, we'll get to religion later. I think that's another, I think the actual state of the law is different than what people perceive it to be. And that drives a lot of the passion behind these arguments. But when you actually look at it in reality, if you want a gun, if you're not a felon, if you're not dangerous, you can probably get one. So I feel like that is what a lot of the constitutional argument misses, and that concerns me too. So on that point, I think, and this goes to something Clark said, New York and California were spoiling for a fight because of the discretion that was built into those mm -hmm. regimes. But as Kim says, like there are lots of other states where you get to have your right to, to have a gun. So I mean, it's sort of bad facts make bad law, good law, I don't know. But I, I think it was a particular peculiarities of those particular regimes. And the point that um, David made about self-defense is, is such an interesting one to me. Like, I wonder if we could import the idea of self-defense from the Second Amendment to abortion rights. Like, does a woman have a right to defend herself against a fetus that could possibly kill her? 
Eugene Volokh has a paper on that exact point. Yeah, so I mean, like, but, but yeah. again, I mean, like, to your point about being here and being able to share these ideas, like mm. that isn't something that I actually had thought of. But you know, what if you thought about it in those terms that carrying this pregnancy to term could actually kill you? Like, do you now have a right of self-defense to terminate this pregnancy to save yourself? And again, like, I, I totally understand Akhil's point about the potentiality of life and that abortion is different because there is a, a second person, but there's also a first person. And like, I wonder if we could think about that too. This discussion obviously is exactly the virtue of bringing together brilliant people of different perspectives to think aloud together and to open our minds. And, well, we were opening our minds, but we have only six minutes left. <laughs> we're not gonna get through all of religion. And I think, in six minutes. I think, in fact, we should quit while we're ahead. That's my vote, because this has been such a model of a discussion of thoughtful, meaningful, constitutional debate and disagreement. Carry this with you forward, and let us use this as our gold standard for how to talk to each other and our fellow citizens about the Constitution in the difficult months and years ahead. Please join me in thanking our panelists. Today's show was produced by Melody Rao. Research was provided by Sam Desai and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is eager for a weekly dose of constitutional learning and light. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the enthusiasm of people from around the country who love conversations like this and who find it meaningful to learn from scholars of diverse perspectives. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. Thank you.